Thanks for listening to the Jazz Jill Show podcast. Today on the pod, as wildfire season continues to start earlier and last longer, rural communities raise the alarm as the only access routes to their towns are cut off. Plus, Uncle Sam wants you. We look at Point Roberts' efforts to lure Canadian workers, plus cross-border boozing. Thousands of dollars flow to Alberta as deal-hungry British Columbians purchase liquor online from our neighbor. BC retailers cry foul. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's start with wildfires today. Now, over the past two weeks or so, you've heard how Highway 4 on a Vancouver Island has been closed because of wildfire because of wildfire east of Port Alberni. Now, the closing of the high, of Highway 4 uh, has meant communities have been cut off from road access as the highway connects the islands uh, to coast. Now, everything from grocery stores to food banks have felt the pinch as the only way for food to reach communities is via uh, an hours-long, narrow logging road. Now, Highway 4 is not expected to reopen until June 24th to 25th. That may change, of course. Even then, the highway would only be open to single-lane alternating traffic. Now, there are typically about 15,000 vehicles daily on Highway 4 between Parksville and Port Alberni. Currently, there are approximately 500 per day driving the detour route, uh, which allows uh, space for transport of essential goods. You could imagine uh, in the early stages here, uh, this time of the year, but the devastating effect it can have on tourism if these fires last a very long time. Now, a similar story up north as well is the once massive Donnie Creek fire threatened sections of the Alaska Highway, which would have separated Fort St. John to Fort Nelson and other parts of the Northern Rockies Regional Municipality. The story, however, at its core, wherever it is in this province, is the same. As wildfires last longer, start earlier, rural communities are in serious risk of being cut off uh, from supplies. Joining me now to talk about the issue and the impact it's had broadly on the island is Marilyn McEwen, the mayor of Euculet. Marilyn, thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. Uh, Can you give us the the present situation for your community right now, just a snapshot of of what you're seeing uh, now? Well, it's been exactly two weeks since Highway 4 was closed on June 6th, and it really feels like it's been two months. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, initially, there was some knee-jerk reactions for some um, impulse buying. Mm-hmm. Uh, the grocery store saw the, uh, their shelves cleaned out pretty quickly the first two days of the closure. But um, we all adapt, and people have settled in, and and we've been reassured that the supply trucks are coming. They're using the detour route. And so we have had no shortage of um, groceries or fuel mm-hmm. here on the West Coast. Um, it, it must be stressful, though, for, for residents there. Uh, you know, fortunately, supplies are coming in. But just to know that, you know, at the end of the day, it, this one route in, it does impact just the ability uh, for people to get in and out and, and the freedom you expect to have uh, when these fires aren't around. Correct, and there is a detour route that uh, is on partially gravel, well, mostly gravel roads, I guess, logging roads, Uh and uh, I know a lot of friends and neighbors who have used it to uh, get to Nanaimo uh, for appointments or whatever they had to do. It's hard to define essential travel. Is a vacation essential? Some people might argue that it is. I don't know, but... uh, there, at least there is a way out. It's not like there there is no other way. So mm-hmm. we, we are thankful for that, for sure. Uh, what impact uh, are you seeing so far on your tourism industry? Because it is a beautiful part of the province, and I know uh, this is the time of the year uh, you, you see the larger crowds. Uh, what kind of impact are you seeing so far? It's pretty quiet around town. And uh, on Saturday, I drove to Tofino, and it was even quieter up in Tofino. So it's definitely the hotels who are suffering the most, mm-hmm. uh, and most of those large properties are up at the Tofino Way. Mm-hmm. Uh, restaurants are also suffering. Um, it is kind of nice to walk a beach with only a couple of other people on it, but it's it's kind of spooky. It's, it's kind of like COVID all over again. Yeah, I, I could imagine. Um, what would you like to see moving forward? I mean, uh, this is a short burst of time, two weeks, uh, but as we have seen over the last three or four years, these wildfires in some cases are starting earlier, lasting longer, uh, and the severity in the time that they are burning, uh, the damages can be quite extreme. What kind of things, in regards to your mindset, your leadership at the municipal level, what kind of things are you thinking about moving forward where you think your community needs to improve or look at things differently? Like, what, What's going through your mind? Well... 
for starters, a permanent ban on campfires. <laughs> really? Because, well, the this fire at uh, um, Cameron Lake, that was um, human set, apparently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, obviously, somebody was not, you know, good enough to cover their smoldering ashes or whatever. Um, that was a particularly tough spot where, where the firefighters have been... Um, uh, at Cameron Lake, the, mm-hmm. at the bluffs, because it's a very sharp um, incline and a treacherous terrain for them to work on. It's it's pretty incredible what they've had to do to to put that fire out. Um, so more education, I guess, about uh, about how fires are, you know, particularly bad at this time of year because it, it could cause a wildfire. Um, yeah, just more education around that, I guess. And, and what about at the provincial level? Um, would you, is there anything you want to see from the province moving forward? Well, we would like to uh, pursue a second route in. Uh, there, the detour that is being used right now is not the shortest detour. There, there is another one that could be made available. Uh, the, pro- the Ministry of Transportation uh, thought that having two detour routes would be problematic, and I can definitely agree with that. Um, but I think we really do need to look at uh, an alternate route uh, in case Highway 4 does get cut off again, which it could do if, if there's a lot of debris still left on that slope that uh, that may come down at some point, maybe even during the winter, during storms. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could be cut off all over again. So. We definitely need to see an alternate route. How much time, uh, th- this alternate route, you said it'd be shorter than what, what's there now with the logging route. How much time would you shave off? Well, I don't know. I mean, it, I, I know people that have driven from Euclid to Victoria using that detour, and it took them four and a half hours. Now, that's exactly what it would take driving Euclid to Victoria, not using the alternate route, using Highway 4. So... I guess it just depends on um, the comfort level of people driving on gravel roads. Some people are kind of white-knuckled, and others, you know, that may be more familiar with driving on gravel roads are are, are doing it, you know, fairly good speed. So mm-hmm. hard to say how much time it would really shave off. It depends on the driver, I guess. Any sense of budget, even for an alt- a, a second alternate route for grading and other work that will be required, I'm sure. Any sense of what the budget for something like that would be? Well, 2016 was the last time an alternate route assessment was done. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know what that cost at the time. I think it was uh, done by the Alberni Clockout Regional District. Um, but they do have a transportation committee that uh, has been re- reinstated and uh, I I'm guessing that the first topic at their next meeting will be, let's do another uh, alternate route assessment. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in your community, are residents, um, have they woken up to the, the, the mindset that some things will need to change? I mean, some would argue, look, this does happen to communities. You could, uh, isn't the first one, first community, others, Pearl Burney, any of them. This, this does happen. It's the nature of, of living in British Columbia in the summertime. Do you think there's a sense of urgency with residents now that they're waking up to the reality that, look, we do have to start thinking about this stuff and talking about this now and really start um, lobbying government to take this stuff seriously? Oh, definitely. Lobbying is 100%. Uh, we encouraged our MLA, Josie Osborne, to connect with our MP, Gord Jones, to help with the um, employment insurance issue because a lot of summer staff had just been hired and, uh, and then immediately laid off as soon as the road was closed. And so he, uh, he went to bat for us to, uh, to put some better conditions in so that people aren't having to wait for the, the two weeks in order to collect EI. Mm-hmm. So that was definitely uh, something that he uh, he went to bat for us for. So those resi- uh, those employees, are they still in Euclid in that area, or did they end up going home? Are they able to get home? Well, they're probably still here because the road's closed. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, hopefully the employers will be able to, to get them back on board. I know some large employers like uh, BlackRock Oceanfront Resort, mm-hmm. they have not laid anybody off. They're trying to keep them busy just because there is kind of an end in sight to this, this closure. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if how many of the summer staff have actually left or if they're still here and just 
really waiting to get back to work. What you just said, I I didn't even think about that. You're right. You come into work in, in, in that area, and if you lose two or three weeks of time where you lose tourists, uh, you're not making any money and you got all this money going out. You don't even think about the impact it has on employees who are getting laid off. So once again, another unintentional unintentional consequence that you don't even think about. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Marilyn, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. I really hope uh, that uh, highway does open very soon and uh, folks can, and first of all, residents get in and out and more importantly, I think even tourists getting in and spending some money in your community and hopefully that'll happen very soon as well. Thank you so much. You're welcome, and fingers crossed. Peter! Hi, um, my name is Peter. Peter! Peter! Peter, Peter Shashecki. You're listening to The Jazz Joe Hall Show on 980 CKNW. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk investments, uh, especially in this um, uh, present environment when it comes to uh, interest rates and and how uh, quickly they're rising. And many have said there's going to be another increase in interest rates, at least one more uh, by before the end of the year. But who knows? There's a lot going on. Uh, very fluid indeed when it comes to the market. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, investments is V. Tree Chuang, Senior Vice President of Everything Financial Group. V, thank you for joining us. Hey, Jav. Happy to be here. Well, let's walk me through this. Uh, now, long-term interest rates uh, are on decline uh, so w- what does this mean for, for investment right now? If you're looking at investment and you're advising customers, what would you tell them? Yeah, so right now we can see, you know, with the, the rates going up for interest rates in the past week, mm-hmm. um, the short-term rates are higher than the longer-term rates. So this kind of signals that everyone knows the market's building in a rate decrease over the next few months, years, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And we can see that in uh, a lot of things, mortgage rates for one, but also GIC rates. So if you went in GIC shopping right now, for example, a one-year could be 5%. A two-year, though, would be 4.5%. And a three-year would be 4%. Mm. So the longer you have your money in, the less you're going to make. It makes no sense. We're in bizarro opposite world right now. It, 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 have you seen something like this before in, in your time in the investment business? No, I, I haven't seen this. Is, this is one's new for me, but with, uh, Peter's been through you know, 32 years of this, so I'm sure he's seen a few of these ups and downs. So if you're looking at this and you want uh, a better return um, on your, let's say, GIC, GICs, like, it, it, what is the penalty for that if you wanted to cash out? Yeah, so redeeming your GIC early comes with a penalty. So let's just use an example. If a five-year GIC was returning 5%, but you want to cash out uh, three years in, they would adjust it to what the three-year would have been. So you would make, say, 3%. Oh, so okay. you would just get the, the interest for what that term would have been. You can cash in your GIC. Uh, for the most part, if if you have one of these redeemable ones or cashable, just watch out. There is one called a non-redeemable locked-in GIC. Mm-hmm. So those ones, no matter how much you, you cry or bang on the door, they will not give back to you, or they're going to charge you a penalty against your principal, which makes no sense. Um, in regards to just the purchase of GICs, as you say, it's a very interesting environment right now. Financially, uh, markets are very different. What kind of questions should you be asking when you, if you decide to, to buy a GIC? Yeah, so great question. For, for clients right now, with the uncertainty of the market, a lot of them want a GIC. So what we're asking clients to do is if you're going to go down that route, ask them to make sure that it's redeemable. Because what we want to do is once we see that market recovery and, and you're, you're okay with the direction the investments are heading now, what you want to do is cash out that GIC and put that into the market and take advantage of the recovery. Because we're in for a big recovery at some point here. And when you say uh, put it into the market, what do you mean? Uh, the investment markets. So stock markets, bonds, that sort of thing. So it, 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 obviously the, the short-term returns are pretty good right now is what you're saying. But um, you're looking – you think there's going to be sort of a bull market or at least it's going to improve relatively quickly over the next year or two. Yeah, we're seeing that right now in the U.S. It's starting to show a bit of a bull market right now. Uh, Canada is normally lagging about a month behind. So I think we're seeing the, the, those signs, like the, the lows. So, so market recovery isn't linear. It's kind of a zigzag up and down. But mm-hmm. the lows are not low. The lows are higher than the previous lows. And the highs are higher than the previous highs. So we're seeing that zigzag trend the right way. So it gives us confidence. 
and 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 do your do your customers, the people you talk to, uh, are, are they feeling confident? Because there's, you know, someone could be very much invested in real estate in the last year, year and a half, probably hasn't been wonderful for them. But are you seeing some of that confidence from people when you talk to them now, or are they still pretty cautious? Uh, it's a great question because we, what we see, like on the professional side, we're pretty confident, but on the, uh, you know, as a regular customer walking in, uh, they're seeing all of this noise out there. And uh, even the Bank of Canada in their announcement, they're saying, guys, take us seriously. We're not lowering rates. Uh, so that's kind of gotten everyone, uh, you know, having a second look at things. And that's kind of what the bond market has reacted to. Um, so it, my answer to that would be just education, right? Mm-hmm. Just look at the numbers, look at the facts, um, get the emotion out of it. Don't invest on emotion, invest at, uh, based on facts. As always, V, thank you so much. Great. Thanks, Jeff. Well, our next guest recently wrote a letter to President Joe Biden. And in that letter, uh, he asked that the government, the federal government, the U.S. federal government, help uh, their community, his community, hire Canadians uh, to fill a labor shortage. Joining me now to talk a little bit about this letter is Brian Calder, president of the Point Roberts Chamber of Commerce. Brian, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Jazz. So what prompted, what prompted uh, t- uh, you to write this letter to President Joe Biden? Well, uh, basically, we've got a very dire situation here. We're not recovering like the rest of the United States and Canada from COVID, uh, which seems to be a long time ago, but it wasn't. And yet we're still suffering no recovery. And President Biden had tweeted out on the weekend that uh, our economic recovery isn't leaving anyone behind. And I voted for Joe and I'll vote for him again. Uh, so I support him, but that is not a correct statement vis-a-vis Point Roberts. So, Joe, check out 98281. That's Point Roberts zip code, and we are in economic trouble with no let-up in sight. And so uh, Governor Inslee has written from the state of Washington on our behalf. Senator Murray from Washington State, uh, head of the Appropriations Committee, put the case of Point Roberts to the full Senate. Uh, in a presentation, and thus far, we've seen nothing. So bigger, uh, more important people than me have advocated for Point Roberts, but that doesn't stop me. I'll continue to to the grave to advocate for Point Roberts. I mean, people got elected saying that they'll represent everyone, mm-hmm. and yet this exclave, unique, they all acknowledge that we're unique in North America, and yet they don't do anything about it except speak the words and they don't live by their own words. So I'm trying to bring attention to the fact that they're deficient in that regard vis-a-vis Point Roberts. Why has Point Roberts not been able to recover, as you say? Well, we we depend on the Canadians in every way, shape, and form. Seventy percent of our property in Point Roberts, albeit the USA, Mm -hmm. is owned by Canadians mostly from the greater Vancouver area uh, and up the valley, mostly. Uh, All of our water, all of our potable drinking water comes thanks to Canada. We pay for it, but if we didn't have it, we'd be in real trouble because we don't have potable water suitable for citizens located in Point Roberts. All of our electric power comes from Canada. It hits the border and it's sold to Puget Power and distributed to Point Roberts. Without that, we're, we're dead in the water. And so we had all that. And, and thankfully, we still get British Columbia supporting us to that degree. But once COVID hit and they locked the border down, mm-hmm. some of us predicted, and I guess unfortunately correctly, If this goes on for more than six months, people's habits will change, and boy, did they ever. So the people that own the properties here found other ways to spend their summers, and our our summer volume would go from our regular residents here of 1,000 people up to 5,000 for mid-June, July, August, and mid-September. So during that time, all of our businesses had to make their money because they basically were deficient customers during the winter months. So, and that's dried up. We're, down, we're still to this day down 50%. Hmm. So instead of getting people of 140, 130, 140,000 coming through, we're getting 70,000. And liken that to a household where 
the boss says instead of making three thousand a month, now you're going to make fifteen hundred a month, and uh, but we expect the same level of service. It just can't happen, mm-hmm. and that's what's happening to our businesses. So several have closed. Many are on reduced hours and reduced service because we can't get staff because our staff moved out, just like our boat people moved out and had their boats stored stored here when they started losing the summers and the employees were locked down here they moved back to what we call the mainland usa bellingham blaine mount vernon ferndale and they stayed there and they're not coming back years ago as you may recall we used to be able to hire uh canadians through the summer just mm-hmm. part-time service workers so we get students and seniors we have people partly retired and it worked flawlessly it worked great and then with 9-11, uh, Homeland Security was invented, and they quashed it. They took it away. No one challenged it at the time because it wasn't a threat. Now it's a huge threat to our economy, and we've sort of woken up to it and said, hey, why don't you bring that back in? So, so you, the, you, you want to attract the person who can work at the local grocery store, local restaurant, at the gas station. That could be part-timers, students, whatever it may be, but you want that ability to do so right now we could yes exactly we could hire 60 service workers at the golf course the marina the international marketplace Kanitsky's reef restaurant and tavern uh 60 parcel posts gas stations right now we could hire 60 and we don't have them and no americans are coming over from blaine or bellingham and i don't blame them one bit mm-hmm. because to make the 15 to 25 dollar an hour job and go through two international borders each way and you know what those lineups can be like at the other side of peace arch mm-hmm. they, they, they it's just not economically in any way shape or form viable for them to do that whereas Richmond, Delta, Surrey, Langley, Vancouver, Burnaby, those people can get here in a heartbeat and a border that isn't that busy. I'm trying to understand why Canadians aren't coming. I mean, a majority of the homes still owned are going to be Canadian. Um, yep. One only has to look at our gas prices. I think this weekend we had $2.09, and I think in Tuas and, or sorry, in Point Roberts, they're about a uh, dollar thirty or something of that sort. We're we're, we're yep. paying a more a higher carbon tax every single year. Uh, you know, your ghost grocery prices are, probably have gone up just like ours have, but generally there's savings and different uh, selection in the U.S. And yet somehow Canadians are still afraid to come back, or certainly haven't come back like they did pre-COVID. I find that very surprising. Well, it, it's you're you're absolutely right in your analysis, but what it is is the, those people are coming in and the 50 percent of our visits to point roberts through this border are less than 20 minutes that does not help our economy to any significant degree it obviously helps the person who owns the gas station Mm -hmm. but as you know from going there there are cards and so there's no employees to speak of i mean compared to a golf course who will use 20 20 people the marketplace 30 people uh, a gas station might use two or three um, because everyone uses their credit card and they don't have to go in and talk to anybody. They just drive in, fill up, and they're gone. Um, so it, it doesn't bode well for the broader economic picture for us. And what happened was when people had to take their boats out of the marina to enjoy their summer in 2020, uh, and then again in 2021, they found alternate spots back in Canada. And they didn't, uh, some of them came back. We're about, back about half full, uh, 450 out of 900. Um, and so, the, and the golf course is closed, probably not opening till mid-July or August. Um, and they would employ 25 people. Um, so it, it's just really hit us and we've broken people's habits because the default position for many people and their families was Point Roberts. So, where are you going for the summer? Oh, we, we always go to Point Roberts. We, we commute from there, the husband, wife, and the kids. Uh, one of them would stay with the kids for the week. The other one would go to work, maybe stay in their house in Burnaby, and, and, and on the weekend come down and stay with the family. Some of them would actually commute from Point Roberts if they were close enough, like Surrey, and just whip into work and come right back here that night. So that pattern has been broken. And the kids have found other places to go and other friends, 
And so they're just not coming down. Yeah, I think part of the challenge is, I mean, we, we've got a labor shortage on, on, on the Canadian side as well, and it's, it's, we're all struggling through it. So, Brian, thank you so much for your time today. If people do, uh, how are interested in going down, obviously, maybe looking for work, they can reach out to the Chamber of Commerce? Yes, sir. All yep, right. Absolutely. And we welcome them to come down, please. Th- Brian, <laughs> thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Jazz. Always a pleasure. We're speaking to Brian Calder, president of the Point Roberts Chamber of Commerce, who says that they desperately need workers down there in Point Roberts, Canadian workers. But, you know, when you think of going across the border, you always think of, think about picking up a, a bottle of wine, uh, perhaps a six-pack of beer. But, uh, you know, and retailers here in British Columbia gen- generally don't complain because, hey, look, uh, you know, anything that you bring back, you're going to get taxed on, especially if you have a, a big order. But recently, retailers have been complaining about cross-border alcohol coming into British Columbia, but it's not of the Washington State variety. It's actually the province of Alberta. Joining me now to talk about this issue is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter, who's working on a story for tonight's news hour uh, in regards to this issue. Richard, welcome. Hey, Joe. Thanks for having me, as always. So walk me through uh, what exactly is happening uh, where BC retailers are crying foul here. Yeah, so what's happening is based on what we saw in the pandemic, people got more and more comfortable with online shopping mm-hmm. uh, and started to look around to buy alcoholic products from, you know, their favorite winery in the Okanagan or their favorite distillery. Even there was delivery uh, at times from their local liquor store. Uh, well, they've now gone further afield in British Columbia and looked across to Alberta, where the system is different, the taxes are lower, and the prices are lower. So what BC retailers are seeing uh, is that Alberta retailers are now targeting the BC customer, especially when it comes to those higher priced wine and liquor sales. And uh, it seems to be working because BC retailers say they've seen a drop off here in the sale of some of those bottles of scotch or tequila or Bordeaux wines. And instead, it seems like Alberta's benefiting. And this isn't just, you know, people complaining that want to get a cheap bottle of very expensive liquor or wine jazz. Mm. This is likely having a big impact on the taxes collected by the provincial government. Because with these bottles, a lot of it is tied in to taxes. And the industry right now is trying to calculate it. But they believe it is in the millions and not the tens of millions of dollars of tax revenues that are going to the Alberta system and not the BC system, solely because of this difference in price between the two jurisdictions. So is it tens of millions of dollars? This isn't some sort of trickle, though. When you're talking tens of millions of dollars in taxation that BC is supposedly losing out on. Yeah, and it's something they're looking very closely. And the big thing here is it's totally illegal what is going on. But the challenge is there's such little enforcement. And I received a, a statement from the BC Liquor Distribution Branch Uh, They say that they are now going to start working uh, with their counterparts in Alberta at the Alberta Gaming Liquor and Cannabis Inspections Branch to enforce this uh, because they know it's an issue uh, and they're trying to best understand how they can stop this from happening. If you travel back and forth by person across provincial boundaries, there are no limits for what you can bring. This is solely isolated to when you're shipping. And again, if you're a member of a wine club, uh, those Canadian wines can travel across provincial borders, but customers cannot buy directly from a retail location in another jurisdiction. Uh, and we'll see if the province is able to crack down on it, but clearly it's having an impact. And, and the industry says it could have trickled down, not just taxation, but also impact on how our local wineries fare over the summer or our local distilleries, and all of that impacts jobs clearly in this province. Do you know what kind of savings we're talking about here uh, in regards to buying online from Alberta? I sure do, Jazz, and we're going to have a lot more on the news hour tonight as I try to pop up the email here that I sent to our graphics team, Mm -hmm. uh, because you're going to see it on the screen tonight when you not watch the news hour. So there's a bottle of uh, 10-year-old Ardbeg Scotch, $113 here in BC. In Alberta, I found it online today, Jazz, for $80. Wild Common Tequila. Uh, right now, posted on a DC website, $183 a bottle. If you look at it in Alberta, it's 125 bucks a bottle. Uh, a Bordeaux wine, a Saint Emilion that I found online, $200 here in BC, 166 in Alberta. And uh, these are clearly pretty big gaps here. And when you talk about shipping costs, 
Uh, they're pretty marginal. We're seeing uh, whiskey clubs and scotch clubs take advantage of this, where if they're buying lots of bottles, there's a significant uh, discount if you're doing that from Alberta than URBC. And, and as I mentioned, that has some pretty deep and profound impacts here. I was reading somewhere, tell me if this is true, that there was a Mission Hill um, wine that you can get cheaper in Alberta. <laughs> yeah. The same Mission Hill wine sold at the Mission Hill winery in the Okanagan costs more in BC. Yeah, that's something Daryl Lamb from Legacy mentioned to me today, too. And that's crazy. And, you know, a lot of this has to do, we know, with taxation, but there's also a markup system that's very different. And that's what the industry is asking the province to review, is take a look at this markup system, make sure that it is consistent between jurisdictions, have a conversation with other provinces. This is such an important industry here, and it's also having a wider impact, clearly, with taxation ramifications. But it's crazy to think that you can buy a bottle delivered straight to your house cheaper in Alberta than you could directly from a winery here. And again, as we're all feeling the cost pressures, you know, what difference could that make when you're thinking about your summer vacation? And you say, oh, well, I love going to Kelowna to see the wineries, and plus I save a bit of cash from buying it direct from the winery. If you knew you could buy it and get it through the mail from Alberta for even cheaper, maybe you decide not to make that trip, and that has an impact clearly on our local tourism economy. And and I know our government's done a lot in the last 10 years uh, uh, in regards to you know, making it easier to bring back alcohol from, from, from other provinces, as you say, for personal consumption, you can bring it back. But it still, at the end of the day, speaks to needing much more freer trade between provinces, that we shouldn't be having this conversation. Because if we can buy it there from Alberta and it's cheaper, it should be allowed to happen. But guess what? We should also make sure our uh, taxation is streamlined. So guess what? Uh, Albertans can buy some BC wine as well. It works both ways. And I think that's probably the longer-term solution that we all want to see. Richard, thank you. And quickly, those mixed drinks that are so popular, you're not even allowed to make them here in BC too. That's still a flaw in the liquor process as well. But we'll oh, talk God. about that one another day. Yeah, exactly. so many that still need um, That's Thanks, another Seth. day, another great conversation during the summer months. <laughs> Thanks so much, Richard. Thanks, Seth. Well, recently, BC Hydro held a press conference to say that they are looking for new sources of electricity. Uh, the Crown Corporation says they want to generate and deliver electricity in their province enough, and they need more power, enough to run 270 thousand homes get this as early as 2028 Uh, the forecast from bc hydro comes as the company plans to launch its first call in 15 years to find new large sources of electricity uh next spring joining me now to talk a little bit about our energy needs uh is cole sayers he is the executive director of clean energy bc cole thank you for joining us today Thanks for having me. Uh, First and foremost, uh, were you surprised by this call by BC Hydro just a few weeks ago? Uh, I wouldn't say I was surprised, but I was happy that it it was uh, confirmed because my association has been uh, making these points uh, around the the, the, the vast duration of the IRP, demonstrating that we're going to be short on power sooner than what was in the original IRP. Mm -hmm. Um, So that change was you know, we would need more power until 2031, but now with the recent update, it's 2027. So this recent call, you know, it's very welcomed. And uh, it just, there'll be a lot of work to do in terms of getting projects online by 2028, because that's a very short timeline. Uh, what is driving uh, this shorter timeline now? Um, well, for one, it's, you know, factoring climate targets, uh, reducing greenhouse gases that we have, you know, other policy areas, such as, you know, the, the clean BC. Um, there wasn't really alignment between the climate targets that you see in Clean BC and the electricity. Um, but a lot, of the, a lot of what's driving is higher industrial and commercial sales. You know, there's there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of new need in the north around the you know electrifying the LNG incorporation of uh, electrolytic hydrogen production facilities, incorporation of medium and heavy duty electric vehicles and vessel loads. Uh, continue to increase market share of heat pumps. So, you know, we've been trying to let them, you know, try to uh, share that we're going to need to electrify transportation and industry. And that wasn't really, uh, wasn't really accurately portrayed in the, recent, in the previous iteration of IRP anyways. But this update, that's, so those are some of the areas where that's been driving this new 
demand. And, and this demand will be above and beyond what Site C, which is presently being constructed, twenty billion dollars plus in cost. I think it uh, it will uh, be online by twenty twenty five, in and around that time. Uh, and so, this is a power that'll be needed above and beyond Site C. Correct. Um, there was a lot of controversy and a lot of discussion uh, during the Gordon Campbell era of run-of-river projects where essentially the private sector would come and build some of these smaller dams which would then feed into the broader uh, BC hydro system. Uh, Are we going to see the resurgence of run-of-river projects? Um, First, I don't think so. Uh, I think BC Hydro has indicated they want to diversify their energy mix and to look at uh, cost-competitive resources such as utility-scale wind and solar. So those are probably going to be the focus of the call with the support from the BCICEI to help support First Nations-led clean energy projects. So when you say um, uh, there wouldn't be run of river, uh, how how much energy do they provide now roughly? Uh, overall, First Nations projects, uh, renewable energy projects, around $6.1 billion invested um, in First Nations-owned or partnered industrial clean energy projects. $3.9 billion of that is in small hydro. Now, the only kind of issue with, you know, the small hydro is that, you know, there's um, generally, at least from Bruce Hydro's perspective, that there are high alpine projects that sell power that's from, uh, you know, rain glacier uh that there's a they're generating a lot of power and selling at a time when market prices are kind of low so that's where i say that because how you can buy that power at a higher cost and then um and then at a loss otherwise you know a point that i like to make is that you know a lot, a lot of those projects are owned by first nations or are partly owned by first nations so those benefits aren't lost like those that that there are benefits that are being reinvested into the community mm-hmm but so it wasn't all private projects. Yes, no, and and, and I think but I think at the end of 2022, IPPs, independent power projects, accounted for 22 percent of the province's electricity needs, and there were 125 separate renewable power plants. Uh, so some of them were run of river hydro plants in uh, in BC. Some of them are wind wind turbine farms in the northeast. Do you think it was a successful program, or was it? Be- and others have said, look, uh, what BC Hydro was purchasing that power for was uh, was uh, too high that it wasn't needed. Do you think that era and that 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 plan was a successful one at the end of the day when they, when it is accounted for accounting for twenty two percent of the province's electricity needs? Uh, well, I think now that BC Hydro and government has focused on engaging first the rights holders and stakeholders on how to how to best shape procurement. So mm-hmm. we are so they want to factor in best practices from other jurisdictions. So you know, I think you know it did it did help a lot. I and mean, obviously, we can learn from from past uh, policy programs. Mm-hmm. Nothing's perfect, and we, we have to look at costs. You know, different technologies back then. Kauai was more larger runner river. There's a lot of factors, a lot of history there, mm-hmm. but I think the main point is that we are going to look at how to best shape this this call for power to to meet reconciliation targets, electrification targets, uh, and then they'll then they'll, and then we'll learn from that one, and then that'll help shape subsequent call for power because it's going to keep rising. Our need for clean electricity is just going to continue rising. Yeah, no doubt in regards to, especially with, you know, I think every family to a certain degree is already talking about do I, do we purchase the next family vehicle being an EV and how would that work within the family budget and uh, can we charge them and everything else? There'll be a need for consistent power. You said in the early portion of our interview here, uh, you know, looking at different types of sources, wind and solar. You know, when I think solar, I still, and, and I know we have homes with solar on, uh, on their roofs. I just drove by a house the other day. It was a very impressive setup that they had here in one of the suburbs in Vancouver. Uh, but when I still think uh, solar, I still think, you know, hot climates, I think Asia, I think Africa, where they, they can really utilize solar and parts of the United States as well and, and the global south uh, and wind, I, I can understand here. But do you think those two systems can be 
can play uh, a significant role in our province in regards to generating power? I'm, I'm, I'm sure it'll be part of the mix, and I can understand that. But do you think it could be significant, even though with climate change, I still view ourselves as a, as a rainforest, that solar and wind can still play a significant role? Yeah, definitely. Um, they're definitely um, they're definitely a good potential resource for electricity. And you know, the thing about the BC is, you know, bringing on renewables, we're in a good position that we do have flexible assets. There are dams with storage capabilities, so you know, if we need power, we can increase the amount of power that can be generated to meet that. That, 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 that demand, peak demand, with the complementary uh, source of power, such as renewables. And as you start scaling up, then that's just going to make balancing loads uh, more trickier. Mm-hmm. Uh, hydro. But, I mean, it's, uh, it's definitely a really good source. You know, they're very cost competitive. Um, there are benefits to local Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities in terms of ownership. There's, uh, there's capital investments by by, um, by corporations. So it's good for our province and it brings long-term operational jobs to rural areas that need it. And, you know, I think that part of this conversation too is, you know, rural economic development mm-hmm. where communities, both indigenous and non-indigenous can own these projects and operate these projects. And that's going to bring, you know, some, some job security to some extent and energy security that will help, you know, bring in, attract economic investment. In a lot of areas, you know, people who don't live in the lower mainland may not experience blackouts and brownouts. But for folks who live in, you know, rural areas, they, they know that that's, you know, a reality. So, I mean, I think there's definitely an opportunity for those communities to explore this in future calls mm-hmm. so that we can bring that economic and energy security to those regions. Cole, thank you for your time. I know you're going to be a very busy man. I know you already are, but the next few years uh, tells me you're going to be very busy. Look forward to having you on because this is a long-term conversation. And let's get you into the studio next time as well. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jeff. Well, let's talk about uh, temporary modular housing. Uh, you see a lot of these complexes uh, throughout the Lower Mainland, throughout British Columbia, uh, and governments, local governments and provincial governments do like uh, the modular housing because they can go up very quickly. They generally go on land that the province owns or the city owns, and you're able to very quickly provide uh, housing for those uh, that are homeless or at risk. Uh, you can see that in many um, major cities. Uh, and of course, you have them here in Vancouver as well. We're going to talk a little bit about one particular project located in the 610 and 620 block of Camby Street called Lorwell Place. It's a 98-unit, two-building complex, to my understanding. Joining me now is our contributor, Jerry Mayer Judson. Hello, Jerry. Hello, Jazz. So I understand uh, this particular project, these the, the 610 and 620 project, uh, the properties, are close to potentially shutting down? Yes. There is another important project, of course, that does need to break ground, and this was a temporary lease on, on this space on Canby Street. Um, so it was always known that it was going to be temporary, but of course it, it does hit when the eviction notice comes. So the lease is up at the end of July, mm-hmm. and uh, we are breaking ground with the new Vancouver Art Gallery, which is a very important project. Yes. But it would be on that site. It surely would. So. And and so these folks uh, have been living at the site of these modular housing units, uh, and they were previously homeless or at risk for ho- being homeless. And now they've been told, uh, is it by would the city who tells them this, that they have to go? I do believe it is the... <laughs> BC Housing? Not BC Housing, but BC Housing has appointed another management uh, oh, okay. organization through them to be in charge. And then I, I assume is, issue these this eviction notice for the end of July. So I did go to a press conference today. It was by Vandu and Our Homes Can't Wait. Um, I have some audio here from both Vince Tao of Vandu and Jill Seren. And Jill Seren is the Carnegie Community Center Association president. Our Homes Can't Wait! Our Homes! Our well place, folks, 98 units of perfectly decent housing. We are here today to demand to halt the demolition of these 98 units, these 98 homes, homes for people that need housing the most. We have about 3,000 homeless people in the city, about 2,000 in the downtown east side. But until we have a plan, 
and a way to implement that plan, we can't lose what we have. We have to keep what housing we already have in place. We're scared that we're going to lose this little this housing for people who are homeless. The modular housing at Little Mountain, 46 units of it was moved reportedly to storage. To storage. The city could find places to store them, but they can't find places to erect them so people can live in them. If we've got room for storage, surely we've got room for housing. Not losing housing for people who are homeless should be a bigger priority than entertainment on Granville Street or cobblestones in Gastown and other city priorities. So just to confirm, that's 98 units on that property? 98 units. And so the gentleman there was saying that the city has rooms to store these modular housing units. Where are they going to end up? They are going to end up, I believe he was referring to a little mountain uh, unit of modular housing. It was 48 and they were sent to storage. But these ones, these 98 units, the word from the city, I believe, uh, is that they're going to be sent to Kamloops, which sure, everywhere everywhere needs housing. And I mean, I guess if we're not using it, then great that, uh, that other folks can. But the question is just... It's, why can't we have decent housing and also then arts and culture developments? And I've got one more clip here mm-hmm. featuring Dave Ham. He's been on the board at Vandu for 14 years and former city councillor Gene Swanson. We have 2,000 homeless down in the downtown east side and another 1,000 in the rest of the city. But the uh, SROs that people are in are at people are at risk every day of losing that housing so at any moment there could be a one of the fire traps go up and then we have more people on the street by just cycling people through all the time it's a you know it's a shelter industrial complex it's not just these modulars that we're losing we stand to lose over 700 of them by 2028 if the leases aren't renewed so uh how real uh, do these activists believe uh, is this information that you know leases won't be renewed? That's a good. It's, I think it's just a projection. Like, well, if all of these temporary leases for this like temporary housing of all types, uh-huh. if they aren't renewed, that's how many houses that we stand to lose, or how much shelter that we stand to lose. And it's not like the it's not like the province or like the city. It's not like we're not making more housing. There are these like portables on Main and Terminal uh-huh. that uh, six six point nine million dollars it costs to to build them. They're not quite finished yet, but is it is it is less, as they say, sort of less decent, less dignified housing because it, you don't have your own bathroom and it's a little less, you know. So that's what the activists are saying. Yeah. Yeah, it's about the press conference. Well, it's a very interesting conversation because, you know, look, I understand that site and they've been there a long time and, you know, housing should be a priority. Uh, but it is a valuable site in downtown Vancouver mm-hmm. and an art gallery is important. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Right? Uh, and finding a solution uh, to, for all this housing that is needed for a lot of these people who are vulnerable mm-hmm. is a challenge. Now, one man I know uh, who uh, has uh, been dealing with this problem or trying to deal with this problem because it is a very challenging one. There's no one solution is is Ravi Kalon, BC's housing minister. And so he'll be joining us after the commercial break. Jerry, thank you so much. Thank you. We're just joining us. Uh, we were talking about the 98-unit two-building complex at 610 and 620 Camby Street. Uh, it is home to um, uh, temporary modular housing complexes, which will cease operations, uh, we are told, by after. After July 31st, uh, many have speculated that it, eventually there will be redevelopment on the part, uh, property for the new Vancouver Art Gallery. Of course, activists today were saying, "Look, we should—if uh, you have to move, move them, uh, move these uh, buildings somewhere else, these modular housing complexes. But at the very least, make sure you have guaranteed housing for those that live there. Housing is always a complex issue. Joining us now to talk a little bit about uh, this particular housing development and the overall issue of modular homes." Uh, here in, in British Columbia is Ravi Kalon, BC's Housing Minister. Minister, thank you for joining us today. Hey, Josh, thanks for having me. So let's talk about this specific issue in and around Larwell Place, the 98-unit two-building complex. As I said, anybody who's been downtown would know it's around the 610, 620 Camby Street, a future home potentially for the Vancouver Art Gallery. Can you walk me through, at the very least, to help me understand that if, if this does have to be shut down because of the lease, where these people go or or if there's any opportunity to find housing for these people? Well, Josh, it, it was always meant to be temporary, this site. Uh, this was the understanding with the city of Vancouver when the original lease was uh, undertaken with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. 
In fact, uh, we have been proactively working with those that live on the site to find them uh, alternative housing options. Uh, many people already have taken it, and we continue to urge those that are there to take other housing options because housing options are available to them. Uh, so you're saying the majority of people have already taken other housing options. Just There's a, a, a small minority that so far have either refused or just haven't found a place? Yeah, there's a, a small minority of residents that, uh, I guess, believe that they want to fight to keep the, the, the modulars where they are. Um, but again, this was supposed to be temporary from the beginning. Uh, I know that uh, um, they, you know, cite the reasons for, you know, building community, wanting to keep people together. And I get that. I think that's, that is very important. But when you're in a housing crisis and you have the challenges that we have, we, we need to be able to move people as, um, as spots come up. So, for example, when we know uh, a location is uh, coming up, we have new units that we've been investing in that are opening up. We start moving people into more permanent housing because these modules are always supposed to be temporary in nature. They're never supposed to be the end of, uh, of the solution. We want to get people into more stable housing. Mm-hmm. And so we've been moving people from the beginning from that site. Uh, and, uh, and again, the last few folks that are there, we're, we're telling them, hey, take the options that we have available. They are. If we can find another spot from the city of Vancouver to uh, lease to move these modulars to, we'll certainly look at that. But right now, there's no option uh, for these modulars in particular. And when we say a small minority of people, a handful of people, what are we talking about here? 10, 15, 20? Uh, I believe the numbers around that, Jazz. I don't have the exact number uh, uh-huh. because it, it, it does uh, fluctuate. Uh, but roughly, I, I would say that those are the amounts of people that uh, still need housing. And again, we do have spots available for them. And, and you know, and I appreciate the uh, the activists are making the case that we need more housing. We definitely need more housing. We need to continue to work on this. So I am sympathetic to, to that point. Uh, but I also, uh, you know, I think it's important for your listeners to know, and certainly what I share with them is uh, we have 98 units that just opened up where we're moving people into. Uh, we've moved people that have been displaced by fires, especially uh, into those units. We have we just purchased a Chalmers Lodge. We have uh, new modulars opening up on Hastings Street. And so we have spaces not only open now, but we are moving more people in, uh, moving them out of the shelters and into modular housing, which is, I think, uh, better than, than obviously the shelter spaces that we have now. Now, the, the, the one, the, the modular units, I think it was main and terminal that you're, you're building, they're almost done. Those are to deal with those that were in the tent city, were they not? Or, or have those folks, have, have they found homes elsewhere? Well, we've been moving people from uh, the Hastings encampment in particular uh, into either uh, short-term rental, uh, uh, sorry, short-term uh, um, um, SROs that we have available now. We've been renovating and moving people in. Uh, we opened a brand new one, a uh, fully renovated uh, site at, at Gastown. Uh, we've got 98 people that we're going to be moving in. I believe 25 people from the Hastings encampment have already been moved into that. We have the Hastings one coming. We purchased the Chalmers Lodge, uh, which was a, a building that was designed for seniors. And we have an additional 130 spots coming there. So, you know, we're making the investments to open the spaces up because we know the need is there. Um, and again, these modulars in particular that that, uh, that some folks were protesting at were always meant to be uh, temporary. And uh, we are looking to move those modulars to another site. If we can find a lease opportunity in Vancouver, we'll certainly look for an opportunity uh, somewhere in the Metro Vancouver region. Um, Minister, it's a tough question to answer, but how, when do you see, see us collectively as a society getting ahead of this? I mean, you talk about all these modular housing units you're putting up. You've purchased a Chalmers Lodge. These are all tax dollars going to this. And I think most British Columbians would say it's a good thing because you want to help those that are having difficulty. At the same time, it's, it is t- still a tremendous amount of tax dollars that are required to do all this, resources that are required to do this. It just seems to me there seems to be a en- never-ending demand for this uh, on the housing side for those that are most vulnerable. I mean, uh, is there light at the end of the tunnel here anywhere that you see any sort of uh, bright spot? I know we're finding housing for them, but it just seems to me the demand is just almost permanent and it's very difficult to get ahead of everything. Well, you know, just there is hope. Uh, I mean, I've talked to, uh, I've been fortunate that I've been able to talk to many people that went from sleeping in parks 
to going into shelters, then getting into uh, uh, SROs, and now uh, have uh, housing in market. Uh, and so I've seen and I've been able to talk to people who have gone through and got back on their feet. So, so there is hope the system can work. The, the challenge we face is that coming out of the pandemic, we've seen um, a real surge in mental health and addiction issues that not only BC is dealing with, this is a North American worldwide issue that everyone is dealing with right now. And on top of that, because of our increased population growth, 250,000 people over the last two years, it's put real pressure on uh, all of our housing stock. And unfortunately, it's pushing people further and further down. And so traditionally, you'd have uh, you know, folks that maybe are having mental health issues or addiction issues where we need supports. So now we have you know, young families who um, just are priced out or just can't find anything to rent, even though they have good paying jobs. And so we're in a bit of a different challenge than, than we have in the past. And, and fundamentally, we had just, you know, for 20 years, we just have not invested enough in housing. Yeah. Uh, if you look at CMACJAS, they say a, a million housing units are needed. If you, if you calculate how many units government traditionally used to build a year and you calculate that 20 years, you'll find we're close to a million units. And so we're behind. Uh, but I do see hope. Uh, I do see hope on the horizon because a lot of the units we've invested in are just coming online now. Yeah. Minister, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Josh. Stay safe. Well, during the uh, three o'clock hour, uh, we spoke to the mayor of Uculet and the fact that uh, many rural communities are going to have to be better prepared uh, for wildfires, not just the immediate concerns, the damage that they can cause, but just making sure supplies can get in and out of their community. Some of these uh, uh, towns have one route in, one route out, and uh, Uculet and those areas around Highway 4 are realizing that. On the island, you're seeing that in uh, British Columbia's uh, northeast as well, as Fort, Fort St. John and Fort Nelson were impacted by wildfires there. At 4 o'clock, we talked about uh, clean energy and a call by BC Hydro and the provincial government where they will need more clean energy. Uh, They want to power up to 260,000 homes here uh, in British Columbia. It all speaks, of course, to the energy transition, whatever that will look like over the next 50 to 60 years. Um, And, of course, with that transition, electric vehicles will play a big role in all of that. Well, today we learned that TELUS has signed a partnership with an Australian electric vehicle charging company uh, where they announced they plan to install up to 5,000 EV charging stations across the country. Uh, the companies expect to begin installing the network of stations, which will include TELUS public Wi-Fi capability as well. Um, in the press release, they did say uh, that uh, electric vehicle drivers will be able to use their Jolt app to access 7 kilowatt hours of free charging per day. Free charging, that's pretty darn, darn good. Uh, the companies, the free charging works out to about 40 to 50 kilometer range uh, in any day, and it takes about 15 to 20 minutes of charging time. Now, uh, this all comes as Canada has mandated at least 20% of car sales to be electric vehicles in this country by 2026. And after 2026, the government is aiming for 60% of sales to be EVs by 2030, and with all sales being electric by 2035. Now, this is all aspiration. Of course, there'll be lots of incentive programs to encourage people uh, to make that switch, but it all comes down to the family budget in many cases. Now, this report comes as Canada still needs around 200,000 publicly accessible chargers by 2030. So lots of aspirational language and a lot of work still ahead for this country in regards to EV charging. Uh, Joining me now to talk a little bit about the realities of owning an electric vehicle and uh, looking for uh, a charger in this city and throughout this province is Harry Constantine, president of the Vancouver Electric Vehicle Association. Harry, thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. Uh, first of all, this announcement by TELUS, I'm sure there'll be more details coming up, but overall, what did you think of it? Pretty exciting. Uh, the the seven free kilowatt hours, that's more than enough for most people's daily commute. Mm-hmm. Um, so seeing seeing them giving away that amount of energy, that's that's a, a, a pretty big deal. Um, these The charges that they're installing, though, are DC fast charges. So that is more aimed at your the people who don't have uh, access to charging at home, which is another issue we need to deal with in the province. Mm-hmm. Um, but also for mainly for those people on uh, longer longer road trips. Longer road trips. Right now, uh, like how long have you had an uh, an electric vehicle? 
I've had it for three years now, a little over three years. And how do you find it in regards to, uh, you know, uh, trips, not just the daily commute, but just trips that you're taking? Uh, do you still have challenges and anxiety over range? No, and, and to be honest, uh, after the first trip, I, I really have not had any uh, kind of anxiety per se. Um, the the charging network in BC, we're, we're very lucky. I've said this a number of times. We're very lucky that BC Hydro rolled out a pretty extensive network for, throughout a lot of the, the province. Uh, we're still lacking in, um, ro- in more rural and remote locations, mm-hmm. uh, which is something the province is committed to addressing. Um, but when we, when we look at the, the, the map of charging network, you can go most places in the province right now uh, without too much of an issue. Most places south of Prince George, that is. Uh, and when you are charging in, outside of the city, are those all fast chargers where you can get a good jolt for with, with what, half an hour of your time or an hour? Yeah, exactly. So, and I tend to, uh, those are all fast chargers. And I tend to plan those, um, those stops around kind of food or like having your coffee or that type of thing. Uh-huh. Um, you drive for, drive for 200 kilometers, uh, two, two and a half hours, um, park up, stretch my legs, go to the bathroom, that type of thing, get enough so that I can get uh, to the next charger uh, um, and go from that. Yeah, and so uh, as more and more people buy EVs, um, I, are you concerned about having to wait and infrastructure not staying uh, up with the demand? I mean, the encouragement is there and, you know, when we I guess it's, one could argue we've hit critical mass already, but more and more is coming. And so, you know, Harry parks at a, at a, at a restaurant and he's charging what if he has to wait another hour to, till the next uh, EV charger is available? I mean, do you worry that as more and more people buy EVs, that's what's going to happen? We are going to be perhaps uh, fighting or being impatient over not enough chargers? Yeah, I, I can I can I can see that being an issue, but I also see that it hasn't been an issue so far. So mm-hmm. as as things stand, we are. Uh, we are meeting that demand where, where people are at. There was the number of EVs on the road. It's not very common that I pull into a charger these days on a, on a road trip, mm-hmm. at least, whereby um, it, they're both occupied, they're all occupied, and I have to go to the next one or wait. Mm-hmm. Um, it happens a bit more in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, I'll be honest, the, the number of EVs in the city and people don't have charging at home um, so if I have to use a fast charger for a little bump, at I don't have charging at home, you see. Um, so I, I will sometimes have to go to one or two chargers before I find a location. But on those kind of out-of-the-city routes, there's that many options that it, right now mm-hmm. that we're able to keep up. Um, it would be nice to see more charges at the sites. So we'll often see like one or two charges at a location. It would be I, nice to see I, 16 plus. Yeah, and, and I, I'm, I, you know, I think a lot of homeowners are building homes or going to new homes and may build in chargers at home, which will be very helpful to the overall system. But we're not all living in single-family homes anymore. In fact, it's the other way. It's it, it's it's yeah. townhouses, it's condominiums, it's multi-use, all those types of things. A single-family home is not going anywhere anytime soon. But certainly you can see the long-term trends in regards to how we live. So my question to you is, what needs to be done moving forward to spur even greater um, b- building of EV chargers, especially townhouses and condos, because I hear so often these older condos, townhouse complexes, mm-hmm. to retrofit the stuff, it's too expensive. It's not worth the time for a strata council to bother to bring an electric charger. It's just too expensive. We've had a Jeremy Cato, a journalist, on. He tried to do that at his own condo facility uh, in um, in North Vancouver, and it just wasn't worth it. I think the cost were like $180,000, something like that. Um, what would you like to see done in regards to policy to, to get more EV chargers built? So, yeah, just just on the expense front, I think right now is there is so much in the way of funding available. Um, the But the upfront kind of in-your-face cost is quite high. So I think one thing we, we, we need to see is um, a shift in kind of how we finance these projects. Because there is often money uh, kind of on the table um, for uh, reimbursement after these have been installed, but the strata is kind of left for the bill in, in the short term. Mm-hmm. Um, additionally, in BC, you know, we have the, the low carbon fuel standard. So a lot of these projects over time um, can pay for themselves uh, using um, 
government credits. Um, but what we are not at a we're not at a point right now where we have enough of that infrastructure uh, in place for people to be able to gather those credits and sell them on on the uh, sell those carbon credits um, on the market. So I think there's more in the way of uh, kind of creative financial solutions is really what we what we're in need of at this particular moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, a final question to you. Uh, look into your crystal ball and tell me what the city looks like five years from now in regards to EVs and, and charging stations. What do you see in this province? So I see a lot more uh, workplace charging. Like you say, we see the people really should be charging. Uh, ideally, they should be charging at home or at work You know, when their car isn't doing anything. This kind of model of driving to a gas station to fill up, to drive to somewhere else, really does, it logically doesn't make sense. I cut apart for a lot of the day. So so what do I see? I see um, in the city um, a lot more kind of smaller level two charges uh, in and around kind of people's place of work, uh, more kind of around the, the restaurants. If you think about it anywhere where there is an outlet that you can get more power there, that's they always be charging the ABC of only electric vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, but also on our kind of major routes, more uh, like hubs. So like out at Hope, like having um, there is an Electrify Canada uh, station with like four charges. And you can almost guarantee that you pull in there, you're going to be able to charge. So I think we're, we're going to see a combination of, of more of those smaller, lower power charges around mm-hmm. um, combined with, um, with these more kind of charging hubs. Yeah. Well, Harry, uh, we look forward to having you on the show again because this issue is not going away. And, and this show, we spent a lot of time talking about, you know, the <laughs> climate change and sort of the, the longer term um, um, changes that are coming to society and how we deal with them. And EVs are part of that solution as well. Look forward to having you on the show again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks uh, for your time. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.